Good to see you guys. Um, good morning to all of you joining us online. Um, honored and humbled to have you have us join you in your home. Um, name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And if you haven't gathered, um, we're simply about Jesus. We love to praise him. We love to glorify him because we believe that when you encounter him, it changes everything. And that's why our fiber, all of our energies, all of our resources go to helping other people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. Um, I just got to forewarn you a little bit this morning. I spent all week completely nerding out on the study because I enjoy going back into historical context. And, and so you're going to understand what I mean by that in a few moments. But I want to start out this morning by sharing with you a little bit about my dog, our family's dog named Tug. Um, Tug is, in my opinion, the greatest dog in the world. We got a picture of him. If we could pop that up there real quick. Tug, he's basically, he's a Newfoundland that's bred with a standard poodle, and I refuse to call it the name, which is Newfie Poo. I would rather say it's a Newfoundland bred with a poodle. I just can't get myself to say that. But nonetheless, he's a big teddy bear of a dog, super gentle, great therapy dog, loves to cuddle, great with kids. He's, li he's literally Chewbacca. Okay, like, I love this dog. Now, however, just like any other dog, you know, he named him Tug because he likes to play tug of war and just like other dogs likes to play fetch. Now, for the most of the time, our dog understands the, the idea of how to play the game, but a lot of times he doesn't. So he'll grab a ball or whatever toy he can get his mouth on, bring it to you, and then like he doesn't quite understand yet that he has to let it go for you to grab it to be able to throw it. But when he does, you throw it, and in about five, six out of ten, he, he will go get the ball and bring it back. But then there's some other moments where he will finally let go of the ball and you throw it and either one or two things will happen. One, he will run in his, in his excitement before you even release the ball hunting for it while all the while you're holding it, okay? The other thing is he, he, you'll throw it and he'll just stare at you. Like he doesn't know where it went and he's just staring and you're like, you want to help, help the poor guy out. So you're like pointing, you're like, Tug, it's over there. And all he's doing is staring at your finger. You're like, no, it's there. You know, you're like, and it's cute for a while. But after some time, it gets a little frustrating because then you have to get up and go get it. It's like, I don't want to play fetch with myself, buddy. And all the while, it's just staring at your finger. Now I share that to simply illustrate for us that we do the same thing. We oftentimes stare at the pointing finger instead of what that finger is actually pointing to. And I am convinced we do that with Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is one of those passages that we immediately associate with Christmas. And once we think of Luke chapter 2, I don't know about you, but for me, Charlie Brown immediately comes to my mind. I don't know why. And then also I start to get this like guilt feeling like, oh, we got to make sure we read Luke chapter 2 to our kids before we open up the presents. Otherwise, we're leading them astray. Like all these thoughts go in my head. I start thinking about like, you know, church with my mom and dad when I was a kid at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church, the candle lights, the carols. I think about all those things when I think about Luke chapter 2. And all the while, a lot of the stuff that, that triggers our hearts and our emotions and all the nostalgic things that come up are nothing but the finger that's pointing at the real issue. And this is the challenge I'm bringing to us this morning, is we need to remove whatever Christmas filter we bring to the text this morning. 
and to read the text the way it was meant to be read. We need to look beyond the pointing finger. We need to go to where the ball is and see what that main point is that God has given us through Luke in this chapter. That is a major challenge. It is a major challenge. And I know that as I read part of the story, certain memories and feelings and emotions are going to start to pop up inside of you. I want to encourage you, try your best to come to the table as if you were Theophilus. Now, the first 300 years of the early church never celebrated Christmas. I know. Horrible. But they didn't. They didn't do that until a Roman emperor some 300 years removed became a Christian and instituted Christianity as the national religion and then took over winter solstice and said, we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ on that day. They never did that. So if you were Theophilus and you were reading Luke chapter 2, how would you read it? What would grab your heart? That's the challenge that we have this morning. Theophilus would come to this portion of the gospel and he would have no Christmas carols in mind. He would have no gifts in mind. He wouldn't be worrying about the meal to come for the Christmas dinner. He wouldn't be worrying about Christmas lists. There's no Santa Claus, no Frosted Snowman, no Mary did you know because he already knows that Mary did know. What we would know is like he would read this, he would read this and his hands would probably start to shake. He would read this and his very soul would begin to tremble because of what he would read in the very first verse. Without a doubt in my mind, Theophilus would have grasped immediately that the birth of this little boy is going to be the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God, which seems to come in complete weakness, in complete insignificance and vulnerability, that there's a conflict between the kingdom of God and all of the kingdoms of this world. Theophilus would have known that Luke is making it clear that there's a line in the sand being drawn. You can't say that you worship Jesus and yet put your trust in any other Lord. He's making it crystal clear. A decision has to be made. And that decision is a major deal. And that's why we have to study this passage outside of Christmas. Because I know, been there, done that. Like even in my quiet times, if like I'm in a devotional or something and it comes into a Christmas passage, I skip it. Because I'm like, oh, that's Christmas. We have to save that for December. I don't want to ruin Christmas. But we have to understand something. This is about the movement of the kingdom of God. And Luke is being very clear Theophilus, Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And this is why I want to talk about this is because I know that you and I can get so distracted by just staring at the pointing finger and miss all the while what God is really trying to get at. So let's read Luke chapter 2. And, but there's a question I want you to keep on the forefront of your mind. And it's the big question of this whole chapter. And it's this. Who is the Savior of the world? Who is the Savior of the world? Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And I know right now you're immediately thinking through some Christmas memories. 
don't do it. Read it as if this is the first time you've ever read it or ever heard it. This is what the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It's hard, isn't it? To read it and and not go, oh, I remember some cute kids reading this in front of the church and this Christmas pageant and a bunch of youngsters, maybe even my child was wearing a bathrobe dressed as a shepherd and there was someone with a pipe cleaner over the head that was like a golden halo. It's hard to picture all of that and to see this just as it is. But I am convinced that the very first sentence would be the very first thing that would have grabbed the heart of Theophilus. He would have been reading this and he would have been stuck at the, the, at the title Caesar Augustus. We read this and we go, oh, Luke is just making a historical marker. That way we can verify that this is historically true. Luke, had, he wasn't even thinking about that. Caesar Augustus is a significant title that would have shaken the core of Theophilus. Now, why is this important? Caesar Augustus is not even the emperor's name. The name of that emperor is Octavius. And the word Caesar Augustus, this is the first time a Caesar was ever called or given the name Augustus. Now here's why this is important. Augustus, he turned the great Roman Republic into the empire with himself as a head. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and he just finished a bloody civil war which he overpowered all other enemies, instituting peace to the world. The Senate and the people voted to give Octavius the title Augustus, which is important because the word Augustus is basically saying holy or revered or godly. He was now revered and considered to be God. We know Roman historians and other historians write this about Caesar Augustus, that he was considered to be, quote, the savior of the world. There's inscriptions all over in the Roman Empire that Caesar Augustus was to be the savior of the world. He was the one to establish world peace. He was the one who was to bring light to all nations. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. What's fascinating, nerd alert, at the time that Luke wrote this gospel was about the same time that the Roman Empire instituted and celebrated the birthday of Caesar Augustus on September 23rd. It was celebrated as the first day of the new year, hailing him as savior of the world. Theophilus knew that. And so when he's reading this, Luke doesn't even give him the name Octavius. He's making it clear that everything that follows is going to be a clash between that king and this king. That Lord and this Lord. You can't have both. That's a powerful message. Think about this. Theophilus has been programmed and threatened to give his allegiance 
to Caesar Augustus. Because if you don't give your allegiance to Caesar Augustus, you're probably going to get killed. Because that's how we do peace then. That's how we establish peace. We beat our enemies into submission. In fact, here's a fun quote from Caesar Augustus himself, speaking about how he created peace in the Roman Empire and how he was the savior of the world. Here's what he wrote. I extended the frontiers of all of the provinces of the Roman people on whose boundaries were peoples not subject to our empire. I restored peace to the Gallic and Spanish provinces and likewise to Germany. I caused peace to be restored in the Alps without undeservedly making war against any people. By my command and under my auspices, two armies were led almost at the same time into Ethiopia, into Arabia, which is called Felix, and very large forces of the enemy belonging to both peoples were killed in battle, and many towns were captured, and thus we have Pax Romana, peace of the world. Make no mistake, Luke is being crystal clear. Yes, the people have to ascribe these titles to Caesar, but nobody has to describe these titles to Jesus. The world at the helm of the world at this time is one who is a self-proclaimed and accepted God and Savior. The bringer of light, the bringer of good news to the world. This would not have been missed to Theophilus. What about in our time? This is why we can't look at the finger. We have to look at what the finger is pointing to. Because there's always a Caesar. There's always something else that we place our hope in, we place our trust in. If it's not other people or other institutions, we do it to ourselves. People are ascribing this kind of power and this kind of glory to other created things. Why is there so much anxiety in our world today? Because we have so many Caesars out there declaring hope and power and peace. If only you would do this and that. And the line is always drawn. Are those things the Lord or is Jesus Lord? Are those things going to be the Savior or is Jesus my Savior? Will those things bring peace or will Jesus bring peace? Is that the light and hope of the world or is Jesus the light of the world? Make no mistake, that line is drawn all the time. Augustus, he never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And what's fascinating is in a few short, in a few short years removed from Octavius' reign, a bunch of emperors will hear about Jesus and feel threatened by his power and his movement, and they will try to wipe out the movement of Christianity. Just like any other power structure, they feel threatened when Jesus claims, claims our heart. Even ourselves, that's why we like to rebel against God, because he claims our heart and we don't want to give it. That's why we got to look beyond the pointing finger. Everything else in Luke chapter 2 is pointing to the point that Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. Make no mistake. What's at stake here is knowing with certainty who is the Savior, who is the true sovereign, who is the true bringer of peace, who is the one true Lord. We cannot miss it. That line is drawn. Who's controlling history? Who's controlling the events of mankind? Is it the United States of America's government? Gosh, I hope not. Is it COVID? Is it other government? Is it the- no? Church, come on. 
If we believe in Jesus, we have to get to that spot where we're like, no, he's sovereign. Did Caesar cause Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? No. God foretold years ago in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Oh, he just decided to use Caesar as a pawn. God is in control. Who is the bringer of peace? Presidents, doctors, vaccines, your pocketbook? You trying to figure it all out? No, it's Jesus. Who's our savior? Jesus. Don't get stuck at the pointing finger. Look to what God is trying to show us here. Caesar Augustus. Theophilus would have read this, and I guarantee you, he would have been thinking, am I committing treason by reading this? And what if I decided to follow Jesus? What does that mean? That's a big deal. But then Luke continues on in this story, and like you got to, again, place yourself in the shoes of Theophilus going, this, there's so many crazy things happening in the first two chapters. Right? You got Zechariah and Elizabeth who are both old, but she's really old. And he gets this vision from the angel, your wife's going to get pregnant. And then also Mary, who's a teenager, who's engaged to Joseph. And she's told that she's going to have child, but not with the help of Joseph or any other guy. But like the Spirit's going to overpower and she's going to conceive. And it's going to be the Savior of the world, God's long-promised Messiah. Like you got to imagine Theophilus going, this is all bizarre. And now we get this story about their journey from, well, you know, uh, Nazareth to to Bethlehem, 80 miles, when Mary is in full term, ready to give birth. And we read this, and we immediately think it's all like nice and pleasant and hallmarky, right? Like there's so much merriment and joy in this. But I'm like, man, like I, I experienced three kids being delivered into this world. And, and like I can't imagine an 80-mile journey in the desert, in the hill country, on a donkey being pleasant. I, I just, like, Theophilus has got to be like, oh, gosh, I don't know who I feel sorry more for, Mary or Joseph, I'm not sure. Like, <laughs> the line is drawn, right? Okay. But, like, you got to imagine this whole thing. And all of a sudden, they are, they're journeying to Bethlehem, which is a peasant town, a peasant village. They don't have room for accommodations. It's not a touristy place. And so when the census happens, Bethlehem, this little village, swells up with a lot of people. And Mary and Joseph aren't the only ones who don't have any room. A whole bunch of other people are. But the difference is, is Mary and Joseph are now coming and Mary is in labor. And she gives birth. And it's not like, like the, they didn't experience like a normal birth. Like, oh, all of a sudden she just gave birth. And she just nonchalantly wrapped him up in swallowing cloths and laid him in a manger. And no crying he makes. Like, that's not it. Like, I imagine, like, that whole scene, the whole pregnancy scene, this is God coming to us. Like, we cannot let that just slip away. Like, this is scandalous. Like, if Theophilus was reading, he'd be like, how is this possible? For one, this is not how kings come into this world. In a feeding trough? In a scandalous relationship, like, did she really conceive by the Holy Spirit? But friends, this is where Christianity began. 
I mean, this is God coming to us. This is God saying, I am going to enter into your humanity to identify with you. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to empty myself so that you could live, so that I could forgive you, so that I could be the Savior of the world, so that you could experience peace. Think about this. God comes in the most vulnerable, humbling, insignificant way. In contrast with Caesar Augustus, whose statues and monuments and inscriptions are all over the world. We have to be in awe of the all-powerful, all-knowing, that all places, at all times, God would come to us this way. And this is why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I mean, he's just mind-boggling over this mystery because it's hard to grab hold of. And he goes, great indeed, we confess the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Yes, it's hard to understand that God would come incarnate and humble himself even to the point of like coming in as a baby in the most bizarre and vulnerable of circumstances. He was vindicated by the spirits. In other words, he didn't need people or the Roman Senate to say, yes, we're going to give you the title of God. He doesn't need that. He is God. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is what it's all pointing to. Are we seeing it? Do we believe it? And then if the story gets any more bizarre, look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Stop thinking about your Christmas filters. Be Theophilus. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Yeah, And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, which coincidentally was the same message that was said about Caesar Augustus when he would come and conquer towns. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, the King, the city of David. Who is the Christ, the Lord? A direct contrast to Caesar Augustus. And this will be a sign for you. He will be dressed in royal robes. Angels everywhere, every leader bowing down before him, paying homage, if not the sword. That's what one would expect. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, ripped clothes, whatever they had, lying in a manger, not to be mistaken as a feeding trough. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. At the same time, the message of peace was being distributed from Rome. Shepherds. Shepherds. You couldn't get any more on that polar opposite extreme 
of a social stature than Caesar as a shepherd. Shepherds, they were outcasts. They were nobodies. They were dropouts, unskilled laborers, despised. They were treated as thieves. Nobody believed them. In fact, they were never able to enter the court of law, even if they witnessed a crime, because they were already deemed liars. And God sent the angels to tell them first. Not King Herod, the king of the Jews. Not Caiaphas, the high priest. Not Pontius Pilate, the prefect in Jerusalem. Not Caesar Augustus. But shepherds. Luke is very very clear. The kingdom of of God and its king is unlike anything else. There is nothing like it in the world. You're looking for one thing, and that's why you keep staring at the finger, but look beyond the finger. Look at what the finger is pointing to and see the heart of God that is coming after your heart, who is willing to leave heaven for you to bring peace not at the threat of a sword but bringing peace by laying down his own life he's the Christ he's the Lord he's the Savior he's the one who can bring good news of great joy then you get this scene right the shepherds come They find baby Jesus in the manger. And Mary and Joseph are like, why are you here? They don't know. No one one told Mary and Joseph that, hey, you're going to have some guests out in the waiting room or some shepherds. They want to see Jesus. None of that. They just come busting in in this overcrowded place with a bunch of grumpy travelers. Cattle, the smell, the smells alone. And here come these shepherds and they stink. Coming in, outcasts, I'm sure when people see the shepherds come in, people are like, and here they come. They're like, is this the one? Angels showed up in the field and they told us that we should look for this baby to save the world and to be in this feeding trough. Is he the one? And Mary and Joseph are like, yeah. And they're like, oh my goodness. And they go out and they start telling people about Jesus. What version of the story makes the most sense? If you were Theophilus, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus being forced like government manufactured refugees to Bethlehem, or are they more like instruments in God's revelation to the world? And then, if things could get even more bizarre, Jesus comes with Mary and Joseph to the temple to do what they're told to do by law, the time of purification, to bring him up, to present baby Jesus as, a, as an offering to the Lord. Now you got to picture this scenario. They come to the temple, and outside of the temple, and in the temple courtyard, there are all these animals. It's noisy, money changing going on, buying this and that. They're poor, so they get some pigeons. And as they walk in, this old guy, I mean, like, okay, moms, if you, like your firstborn, don't you get like mama bear? Like, tendencies, like, don't you even look at my child the wrong way. Like, okay, so they're in the temple, 
coming with baby Jesus and this old man who's been there because he was told that like by, by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah, the Lord's Christ at some point. And so he's been in the temple praying and longing to see the consolation of Israel. And all of a sudden, as baby Jesus comes in with Mary and Joseph, the spirit inside of him just moves and he comes to Mary. And like, I don't know, like I always picture these things like he just came all excited. And I'm like, if I was Joseph, I would punch him. Like, right, like, here comes this old guy, probably in drabs, like, long beard and all this kind of stuff, coming towards my newborn. I'd be like, man. But he comes and, he, like, he just grabs baby Jesus, and he begins to bless the Lord. Like, re- like look at this in verse 25. Uh, not verse 25, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. He's holding baby Jesus. I mean, put yourself in Simeon's shoes for a moment. Baby Jesus still doesn't even have a head strong enough to hold up on his own. So he's holding him like this and he's looking at him. Can you imagine Simeon holding this baby and being overwhelmed like I'm holding the Christ? The Messiah, God, I'm holding God himself. This is the one. I can die now. And then he's saying these words that Luke knows that Theophilus is going to hear and go, oh, this is what's said of Caesar, the savior of the world, the light of revelation for all Gentiles. It's him. Nobody else knows. Shepherds know, and this crazy old prophet knows. It's a beautiful picture. And as he's holding this baby, guaranteed, he's, he's thinking through like Isaiah 9, 6, which is another passage we love at Christmas. Like, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. My eyes are staring at your salvation. Whoa. And then he turns. He looks at Mary and Joseph. And I picture he's still holding the baby. And he blesses them. But then he speaks some words that just don't seem to fit. This baby is going to be the cause of the rising and falling of many in Israel. He's going to be the stumbling block. People are going to hate him. Some will love him. All these people in this temple, these religious rulers, they will cry out, crucify him. They will miss it. And Mary, a sword's going to pierce your heart. You're going to see your boy get spat upon, get mocked, get betrayed get lied about, misunderstood, you're going to hear the nails being driven into his hands. And there's nothing you can do. You can't hug him. You can't hold him. You're going to see him lifted up. You're going to see your son suffer. That's why he came. And that's why I believe Luke put this in here, is to go, the 
path of Jesus of bringing peace and salvation to this world is going to be the path of suffering, not conquest as we know it. It's different. Instead of forcing people to bow by the sword, he will willingly lay his life down. And because we are hungry for power and we all love to play the role of God, we will mock him. We will cry out, crucify him. But that's the path. Merry Christmas. Chapters 3 and on, volume 2, Acts, the movement of the church, is a consistent theme where Jesus is going to start teaching, if you want to follow me, you have to carry your cross. If you're going to follow me, you have to count the cost. And following me is committing treason to the powers of this world. Following me is committing treason to your own self-righteousness. I alone am the Lord. I alone am the Savior of the world. This was very clear. Very, very clear. Don't stare at the pointing finger. The Christmas message is an extremely revolutionary message. The light comes in a dark moment. And today as we celebrate communion, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. It's a gift that God gave us to remember the gospel, to remember that God came, took on flesh, did all of this for us, showing us his heart, pursuing our heart. When we would be the ones in the crowd yelling out, crucify him. While we were his enemies, he still died. And we are just like the shepherds who we need to hear the message of the angels. Do not be afraid. Even though you know you're a sinner, and even though you know you would have been the one crying out, crucify him, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. It will be for all the people. That's you. That's you. Peace can only come through Jesus. And he offers us the peace with God so that way we can have peace with each other. The peace that surpasses all understanding. So let me ask this question. As we come to the table, who is the Lord of your life? You know who the Lord of your life is by answering a few questions. Who is ultimately sovereign? 
what are you looking for and hoping for to happen outside of you? Where are you placing your hope and your trust? Where are you looking for peace? You cannot serve two lords. There's only one. And we cannot forget that as we celebrate communion, to remember that he shares in our sufferings. He did all of this, not because he had to. He did it because he loves you. He did all of this for the joy that was set before him. He willingly allowed his body to be broken. He willingly allowed his blood to be shed for you. And when we think of Christmas, and we hold these elements as symbols and just thinking about all of this. How can we not just be overwhelmed with this story and feel broken that we would ever give our allegiance to anyone else? So this is your moment to do hard work with God. There's no room for guilt there's no room for shame because otherwise the message of the angels doesn't make sense. Fear not. That's a message that speaks into our guilt and our shame. Yes, you're a sinner. Yes, you've done some bad things. And yes, you've thought some things that you wish nobody would ever know. Of course, we all did. He's not surprised. This tells us that. So do the work of confession. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and remember, the Holy Spirit can only lead to life. So if there's anything that starts to bubble up, or maybe if you've never said yes to Jesus and you're feeling like this, man, I, there's something there. That's God drawing you to himself. Let this be that morning where you say, my Lord and my God. Lord, we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. For doing the remarkable. Lord, I ask that our words would be few in this moment. We would hear the voice of your spirit. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. We, by faith, confess and hail you as King of kings, Lord of lords. Minister to our hearts now. In Christ's name.